Well, when I was a little boy, I noticed something pretty early on that I was not like my sisters. I have three brothers and I have two sisters and we kind of had different interests. And I've also noticed this in my three boys compared to their two sisters. And I've noticed this in, as I compare myself to my wife. Now, one of the things that almost all young boys, and this extends into, uh, into the rest of their lives in some respect, is young, young boys, and the w- women don't always understand this, but young boys love to fight. They love to compete. When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows was G.I. Joe. You know, as I'd watch the good guys take on the bad guys, and I'd lay awake at night, you know, dreaming of doing these roles and shooting away at the enemy and, you know, being this hero. And then, you know, through my teen years, some of my favorite television shows were, you know, Chuck Norris, Missing in Action, you know, all these action and adventure shows. Young men have this innate desire to compete and to fight. And I remember when my boys were very young, many of you know that my wife comes from a Mennonite home, and if, you've understood, if you understand anything about Mennonite history, um, they tend to be pacifists. Mennonites tend to be pacifists. So the history of Mennonites is fascinating, where they, would, they moved from the Netherlands and Germany under persecution to Prussia, and from Prussia, they then were confronted with the Russification of Prussia, and they fled to Western Canada, and from there, many of them fled to Mexico because they were under persecution for not fighting in World War I, and then Bolivia and Belize, and then some have come back to Canada. But the history of the Mennonites is, for the most part, marked by passivity to resistance. So when our boys were very young, and some of you know this story, when our boys were very young, we would buy them Lego sets because Lego's a great toy for kids. And a lot of Lego sets have these little tiny swords in them. They're about three quarters of an inch long or little guns, little weapons. Well, my, my sweet wife would open these boxes and to her horror, there are these miniature weapons in there. So she would pick them all out. I'm like, what are you doing? My boys are not playing with swords. My boys are not playing with guns. I'm like, they're this law, who cares? Now, ultimately, I converted her to my way of thinking. <laughs> but at the time, this was kind of a big deal, and I, w- I just kind of thought this was hilarious. Now, women are very different, right? Women are very different. Last night, we had a young couple in our church over, and the guy and I were talking, and I saw Susie talking with the potential bride, the future bride, and they were looking at pictures, and I kind of, I didn't laugh out loud. She doesn't even know I was thinking this. But they're looking at the pictures. Oh, I like how the sun is sort of, setting and oh that looks great and oh it looks so peaceful oh yeah I love the outdoor I'm just thinking who cares it's not of interest to me whatsoever so men and women are radically different and we process life from very different perspectives but one of the things I I just wanted to use this illustration um, to sort of get us thinking about is when it when it does come to war in actual fact war and fighting is no really fun thing. It's in actual, in actual fact, it's, it's brutal. So if you, you can have these visions and dreams of you know, jumping the fence and fighting the enemy, but when boys grow up and they become men and they study or are exposed to the actuality of war, they realize it is a brutal game. It is a brutal game. And if you've known soldiers that have gone to combat with all their 
visions of grandeur and come back with PTSD or just horrified at what they have experienced and seen, you know that mature people, in actual fact, want to avoid war at all costs because they understand how damaging and destructive it is. Well, Christianity is framed up for us time and time again in the scripture as a war. We are at war with the enemy. We're, we're at war with our own flesh, which is yet to be fully redeemed. Of course, we are at war with our ultimate enemy, the devil and his minions. And we are at war with the world around us. This is a fact. And it, when people first come to faith in Jesus Christ, it can seem sort of pie in the sky. So oh, this is great. Jesus loves me. I found my identity, my hope. My problems are going to be solved. I'm going to find a wonderful husband or wife. We're going to have kids and I'm going to have purpose and perspective and eternal life. And the Lord's going to provide for us. We can have sort of this idyllic view of the Christian life. And many people are attracted to Christianity because they think it will solve all of their problems. And then they're surprised to find out that while it solves many of our problems, it creates other problems, at least in this world. And the reality is, is that following Christ is a dangerous lifestyle. It's a brutal lifestyle. It's a challenging lifestyle. But rather than flee from it, rather than flee, we are called to lean in and follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we started a sermon series last week based upon Matthew chapter 10 called When the Pressure is On. When the pressure is on for Christians, when we are being challenged, attacked, persecuted, when our government is claiming to be our Lord, our Savior, our King, when the pressure's on, some will flee because they don't want to count the costs. Others will stay and they'll truly and authentically follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 10, though, was a wonderful reminder that while ministry will cost you and it will divide relationships, God will always provide a place of refuge for faithful servants. He always will. So let's get into the second part of this chapter. We're going to study today verses 16 through 25. And I've entitled this, The Dangers of Christian Mission. If you're going to be on mission with Christ, if you're going to be in his army, there's going to be some dangers that you're going to experience. And you shouldn't be surprised when you do. So here's the text. Behold, Christ says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Here's another danger. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, 
will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We'll look at the final two verses in a moment, but let's just talk for a little bit about this first series of verses. Here's the big idea. We are on a dangerous mission, church, so get used to it. We're on a dangerous mission. Get used to it. Newsflash, it's not going away. Even when this crisis ends, there'll be another one. And when that crisis ends, there'll be another one. And when that one ends, there'll be another one. And maybe there'll be a six-month reprieve. Maybe there'll be a 60-year reprieve. But there will always be challenges that God's people will face because the world hates Christ. They will hate those that follow Christ. You cannot avoid it. But if you respond appropriately, two things will happen. God will sanctify you through it. And you will bless others as a result of your response, which will make it all worthwhile. Let's talk about the dangers. There's five or six dangers here recorded in the text. And we need to know the dangers. These dangers serve as signs, in fact, you're doing the right thing. So as you assess and evaluate your own life and you think about the blows you take for Christ... You're like, yeah, I I can relate to that. I've experienced that. Yeah, I went through that last week. I'm anticipating that next week. These actually affirm that you're headed in the right direction. Have you heard people say, "I, I, I follow Christ. Now I'm suffering. What kind of a good God would allow me to suffer? And so they abandon the faith? It should be the other way around. If you're not suffering, you're not following Christ. Because we're guaranteed suffering in this life. Suffering is a sign that God loves you, that you're serving him, that you're actually following in the actual footsteps of Jesus Christ. You can, you can assume, for, a mo- for, for example, that you will be attacked. The language of the text says, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves. I don't know how many of you know much about farming, but you know what this means. Wolves kill sheep, not the other way around. Wolves kill sheep. They're a dangerous threat to sheep. Now, we don't have wolves in this area of the country, but we have coyotes. We could use that example. We're sending you out as chihuahuas in the midst of coyotes. We're sending you out as cottontail rabbits in the midst of coyotes There's dangers out there, but fortunately, even though we are sheep and we are vulnerable, God has provided us with a great shepherd, who's the Lord Jesus Christ, who guides and protects his own. And he has also given to the church under shepherds who are commissioned by God to protect the flock that God has placed under them. And I can tell you this, the under shepherds of this church won't cut and run. We will protect our flock at all costs. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two is corrupt courts. The text talks of being dragged before the courts. Now, in an ideal world, courts are supposed to stand for public justice. That's their job description in Romans 13, to wield the sword on God's behalf, to uphold justice, to punish the criminal, and to bless the righteous. That's why God has placed government into place. That's why God allowed governors to kings to be put in place over Israel. Ideally, we would all just surrender ourselves to God. 
But in a broken world, God puts kings and governors in place to uphold public justice. But the problem is increasingly, even in the West, our courts are becoming filled up with activists, with progressivist judges, with judges that don't understand that God's law is the basis of human law. And so they're just pulling their ideals out of thin air. We now have laws in our country that contradict themselves because increasingly even judiciaries are being corrupted. And it's hit and miss. You never really know. I've heard many people say, ah, none of of these tickets are going to stand up in court. Well, I'm glad you're optimistic. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's kind of irrelevant to how we respond. But let's not assume that our judiciary is righteous. Let's not assume that we're going to win in the courts. Because as a country abandons God's law as the basis for jurisprudence, things get crazy and crazier and crazier. Now, of course, as Christians, we don't want to contribute to that. This is why moving forward, we will, I will, never vote ever again on any level of government, municipal, provincial, or federal. I will vote for no candidate that remains silent or was complicit in what's going on in our culture today. Not a single one. I don't care what their party is. I don't care how much I like them. I will not vote for anyone that remains silent and allowed this kind of tyranny to be imposed upon our country. Why? Because they're the ones that have influence over the future judges are. So we, we have a say. If the church of Jesus Christ actually thinks beyond its four walls and acts strategically in terms of the way we interact with governance, we can make a difference over the next 25 years in our municipality, in our province, and even on the level of our federal government. But nevertheless, in the meanwhile, we can expect a measure of corruption in our courts, and we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when corrupt judges slap injunctions on churches and fine them $83,000, as happened to our sister church in Waterloo. We shouldn't be surprised when governors permit the arrest and imprisonment for 35 days of a Christian pastor for pastoring his church, a church over which they have no jurisdiction. This is why we have separation of church and state. This is why we're not taxed, because they have no authority over the church. But modern progressivist judges think they do. They just think we're another charity, another organization. This is something that we should expect, and we're seeing this in real time as we speak in our country. Beatings. Early Christians were often flogged. Why do you flog someone? Well, it serves to publicly shame them. It it serves to embarrass them. It serves to show your power over them. Every crack of the whip is, you're my servant, I'm your master. You're my servant, I'm your master. It serves to try to subjugate. Now, we're not to that point in our culture, but the Church of Jesus Christ has started to take verbal beatings, which are painful, financial beatings, which are painful. It's not particularly far-fetched to think that this will escalate even further. Are you ready for that? Or are you going to cut and run because someone gives you a $750 ticket, a piece of paper to try to shame you? 
betrayal. This is an especially painful one. Brothers turning against fathers, parents against their children. Are we not seeing that in our own culture today where families are divided over matters of truth, where people are ratting each other out, where people are cutting off relationships because you know, one party buys into the radical, secular, godless, and destructive sexual agendas of our culture. Families divided over their stance on infanticide, abortion. Families divided over their stance on the supremacy of Christ. I mean, we even have the church in Canada radically divided right now, where the majority of churches seem to feel quite comfortable bowing down to Caesar time and time again. I mean, last spring, no one knew what was going on. We thought everybody was going to die. Now we know they're not. And people are still bowing down to Caesar just because, and this has caused great division and consternation. It's certainly caused me to end several relationships with people I previously considered to be brothers. I wish it wasn't that way. This can be hard emotionally, but two points. I can tell you this. Long-term faithfulness blesses families. Play the long game. Stand for truth. Stand for righteousness. That blesses families. And let's all remind ourselves, as much as I love my children, my wife, my brothers and sisters, my parents, my extended family. As much as I love them, family is a temporary thing. Just part of this life. There's going to be no marriage in heaven. We're not going to be physical family in heaven. We're part of a spiritual family. So let's just remind ourselves of that. Hatred. The Bible says you will be hated for my name's sake. Being hated for Christ's sake is normal. Now, you don't want to be hated just because you're an ornery, nasty person. But being hated for Christ's sake is normal. The world hates the church because the church, as it properly preaches the word of God, exposes wickedness. They don't like that. It exposes their shame. Do you think our premier or prime minister or local mayor likes the church to say, actually, we surrender to Christ and Christ alone? That's an offense to their power. They don't want to hear that. You know, we have an activist police force that puts out their little pro-LGBTQ postings on Twitter. We're going to stand with the LGBTQ community. They put their little posts out. We're going to stand with the cultural Marxists masquerading as people in favor of racial equality. We're going to stand with them. Why are they not standing with the church? It's not popular. It doesn't advance their social causes. It doesn't advance their power. The church offends them because the church says, no, we're going to surrender to Christ and Christ alone. We would like you to as well. This offends the world. You think of what's going on even in our own country over the last, our own province over the last 24 hours. We have mayors, police officers rising up, open our playgrounds. You see that? Open our playgrounds. We're not going to do checkpoints. Okay. Who's speaking out for the church? People are more concerned about getting playgrounds opened up than churches opened up, which are spiritual hospitals to lost and dying people. See, one's one's marketable. One appeals to the public appetite. The other doesn't. 
society as a whole would just as soon we stay closed forever. Persecution and rejected, rejection. Persecuted people will be chased out of town. And sometimes people even get violent with them. You know, when you're in one town, flee to the next, the text says. Sometimes the proclamation of the gospel to run you out of town. It might take them several decades to run you out of town, but they try to run you out of town. Some of our forebears were run out of countries, entire countries because of their faith. You know, in the, in the early, as I mentioned previously, in the 1920s, the Christian Mennonites in Western Canada were essentially run out of the country of Canada because of their convictions. This happened in our country before, it'll happen again. How do we respond? So these are the, 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 the earmarks, the, the things we should expect, the things we're already experiencing. How do we respond? Well, the first part of this passage talks about us being sent. He's gonna send us out. If your master sends you out, what are you supposed to do? supposed to go. This is in keeping with the great commission. So Christ sends us out. What do we do? We obey. We continue to be salt and light. We continue to speak truth into culture. We continue to share the gospel. And sometimes we're going to be in prison for that. So in the process of going, we may be arrested. We may be ticketed. What are we supposed to do? Second thing is we're supposed to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a really This next statement is really critical and very timely. In the text, it says, you'll be dragged before courts, and then it says, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. In other words, to bear witness to the lost and dying world. Now, how many of you have seen people say on social media or maybe in conversations over the last year, oh, it's a bad witness to open your church in a pandemic. It's a bad witness. Have you heard that? I mean, we had a local talk show host, a homosexual, tell me I was a bad example for opening my church, as if he is somehow the harbinger of all that is moral and righteous. So we hear that, and we hear the Christians, it's a bad example. You want to be a good example. You want to be a, a faithful witness. You should close your church. What does that indicate? It indicates that the church has a corrupt view of what being a faithful witness is. We think being a faithful witness is acting in a way so that people will like us. Is that not true? Oh, we want people to come to our churches. So we want to kind of round off the corners. We don't want to be too aggressive. We don't want to be too bold. We just kind of want to, we want to be like Switzerland, neutral on everything. Just let's take the middle ground. Let's not ruffle any feathers. That's a faithful witness. And if you take a stand, if you push back against radical ideologies, if you speak out against abortion, that's, that's, not, a good, that's not a good witness. Now, this is so true that the vast majority of our churches, they never talk about abortion. They never talk about the radical sexual agendas of our culture. They never talk about political matters that are actually theological matters. They just shy away from it all. And you come into church and you, know, you get your coffee and the music's going and everybody's cool. And you know, you just, it's just a, a nice experience. You're never convicted. I mean, God forbid you be convicted in church, right? You never hear a word of warning or a word of judgment. Well, 
This passage actually defines faithful witness as standing before the courts, bearing testimony to the fact that you rebelled against the social systems that are corrupt and godless. That's a faithful witness. A faithful witness is doing what's right regardless of the consequences. That's a faithful witness. Otherwise, why would it say to bear witness before them in court and to the Gentiles? So folks, very simply, faithful witness is obedience, period, to Christ, period. If you want to be a faithful witness, you have to be obedient to Christ. It's, that's, that's what it boils down to, not being in the governor's good books. Then we have this emphasis on anxiety. Now, this is an interesting word. Obviously, we want to be responsible. We want to be thoughtful. There's, there's always going to be a, a, a weight that leaders carry, a concern for their people, a concern. We're not, well, whatever, who cares what's going on in society? We're, we're concerned about what's going on in society. We're worried about what's going on in society. We want to act responsibly with regard to what's going on in society. But we're not going to allow it to overcome us. And in fact, if you have a lot of anxiety in your life, it indicates a spiritual deficit. It indicates that you're living your life with a closed fish. You're just holding on to things far too tightly. Open your hand up. Live your life with a cupped fist. With a cupped hand, you're responsible. You're holding on to it. You're caring for it. You're stewarding your life. But if the Lord wants to take it away, you just give it back. Not like this. So we just need to kind of remind ourselves, really, at the end of the day, if we have convictions, does it really matter that someone tells us to blank, blank on Facebook? Does it really matter that nine, 12 times every single Sunday, the police department are called by people who hate us that live on this street or who drive by? Are we going to get all worked up because some knucklehead decides to throw roofing nails in our parking lot? Are we going to get all upset because someone walks up to us with a piece of paper, a court summons? Ooh, a court summons. If a court summons is the greatest persecution you ever have to receive for Christ, you got it pretty, pretty easy. <laughs> Ooh, a $750 ticket. I'm a martyr. Right? If that's the worst we ever have to experience, 35 days in jail, big deal. If we have to take a stand for Christ, we're not going to be anxious about that. God will be with us. The text says you are to say will be given, whatever you are to say will be given you in that hour. And in that hour, what we might be giving is a word of hope. Or in that hour, what we might be giving is a word of judgment. Do you remember Jesus sort of talked about praying for your enemies? You remember that? You ever thought about what that means? Most people think, well, praying for your enemies means, Lord, we pray that you would bless our premier. Pray that he'd have a great day and the sun would shine upon him. And that his life would be great. And that he'd feel encouraged. How about the imprecatory psalms? The imprecatory psalms call for God's judgment upon your enemies. At times we pray for blessings on our leaders. At other times, we pray for God's judgment. Because we're mean? No. Because we know that until someone is surrendered to Christ, they will never rule justly, and they will only ever destroy and ruin other people's lives. So I'm not trying to be mean. 
But it's biblical to pray imprecatory psalms upon your enemies for God's judgment to descend upon them. That makes Christians feel uncomfortable because I haven't heard that preached in church, but it's in the Bible. You can read about the imprecatory psalms in passages like Psalm 10, 15. Here's what the psalmist prayed about his enemies. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his righteous wickedness to account till you find none. And there's many other imprecatory psalms where God's choice servants call down judgment upon leaders and rulers that are acting either out of ignorance, and I, I think most of them now are just acting out of ignorance, or willful rebellion to the things of God. So we set aside our anxiety. We preach a word of hope. Hey, dude, you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or a word of judgment. God will judge you. And we're praying that God would judge you until you surrender yourself to his sovereign rule. Fourth, we endure. The Lord tells us here that he will ultimately rescue us. We endure to the end. The Lord will save us as we endure, either in this life or the end. The one who endures to the end will be saved. One of the hallmarks of genuine bona fide conversion is the perseverance of the saints. The true believer will persevere to the end. It may be a rough ride. There may be times when you fall away or step aside or rebel against God. But in the end, the Lord will call unto himself those that are truly his own. Another lesson here is if necessary, flee. If they don't listen to you in one town, flee to the next. Now there's several implications for us as we consider this message. One would be that there will always be places within which ministry will flourish. Sometimes we have to get out of town, get out of Dodge, leave the town, leave the province, leave the county, leave the country. What's your red line? When would you leave? I'll tell you what my red line is when they come for my children or grandchildren. When they come for my children or grandchildren, I'm gonzo. I'll leave this area or I'll leave this province or I'll leave this country in a heartbeat. If they come for my children, they force godless secular public education upon families. They rob families of the right to, let's say, homeschool. Or they force our children to be, to be exposed to experimental medical practices. That's a red line. Gone. Emigration. To where? Yet to be determined because there's very few places in the world that are worth running to. But I'm not going to get out of Dodge because someone's handing me out tickets. I'm not going to leave Canada because someone's persecuting my church. But if they come for my kids, I'm gonzo. So there's that implication. This is a green light to leave if they come after our families. But there's a couple other lessons here for us to consider. Never give up your mission. If they don't listen to you in one town, go to the next. Never give up your mission. Don't be silent. Just go find another audience. And there's always fields that are ripe unto harvest. If you're at work and you're, at great, you're being persecuted, you've been a faithful witness, you've prayed, you've done everything you can and they're still after you, go find another job. Find a place where you can be a faithful witness elsewhere. Another lesson is don't waste your time if there's no fruit. 
I've talked about this before because I used to think that faithfulness was doing the same thing over and over again, whether or not it bore fruit. And now I realize that while it can be tough, if we're doing what God has called us to do, there will always be fruit being born. By the way, one of the reasons why I know our church is doing the right thing is because people are getting saved by the droves. People are being galvanized in their faith. And guess what? All the pagans and the godless people are with the government. The compromised churches are championing the message of the government. The, the, the pagan religions are championing the message of the government. The, the radical sexual agendaists are championing the message of the government. So if I'm listening to culture and I'm hearing godless people, yeah, lock the church down. Yeah, you're being a bad example. Yeah, lock up pastor coats, throw away the key. Yeah, take their tax-exempt status away. I'm like, yeah, we're doing the right thing. Thanks for the affirmation. I appreciate it. But don't waste your time if there's no, no fruit being born. So retool your ministry. Look for another audience. As you think about this for your own life, I know that many people in our church and other faithful churches are thinking about moving away. I know that. I see the real estate comments online. I put it in your head last fall when I preached a message on this particular passage, so I'm partly to blame for that. I've thought about it. And at some point, it might be an option. But if you're ever going to leave or move, make sure there's both a push and a pull. And make sure that you know before God you've done everything in your power to stand firm and that you've actually taken a few blows for Christ. Don't leave the first time you're ticketed. Make sure you've actually took a stand for Christ. Now, the good news is, and I wanted to share this publicly with you, some pretty awesome things are happening in our country. I understand that sometimes when people profess faith, they do it in a time of crisis, and it turns out to be kind of a fake profession. I understand the idea of backsliding. I'm not going to name them, although I think it's going to come out very soon, but I can tell you this, two extremely prominent politicians in our country that we've rubbed, been rubbing shoulders with came to faith in Jesus Christ this past week. Okay. And it's, a, it's, it's super awesome. It's, it's super awesome. A provincial MP and a former federal MP, you can connect the dots, who profess faith in Jesus Christ this week. And I thought to myself, isn't that awesome? Imagine if, as a result of all this, we discovered a year or two or three years from now that there was a reformation in our country. I don't want to leave before that happens. <laughs> I want to stick around long enough to see what God has in store. This world is not my home. Our family's been in Canada for over 250 years. If we have to leave, we'll leave. But in the meanwhile, I want to continue to see God move. And I'm starting to see God move in the culture. I, I'm getting calls from unbelievers who've never gone to church saying, we need a pastor to speak at this protester rally. No one will stand with us. We have many people that are looking to the church because in the deep recesses of their memory, you know, they're thinking back maybe to some history book they read 25 years ago that the church was the one that used to stand against tyranny. 
The church was the one that used to stand against godlessness. It was clergymen, Christian clergymen, that throughout history stood against slavery, racial injustice. Not some godless secularist that thinks he's his own god. It was the Christian church that sent people to Ottawa or Queen's Park. It was was a Christian idea to start hospitals. So it's high time for the church to get out of its holy huddle and re-engage thoughtfully and intelligently with what's going on in the world around us. And we know this world is not ultimately our home and it's going to get worse. But we are either on the verge of a meltdown of Western civilization or a reformation in Western civilization. And it might take 10 or 25 years to know that. But let's exercise some wisdom and discretion, some prayerful discernment. And let's not make the mistake of scattering in all sorts of directions so the wolves can pick us off. If we have to leave, we'll leave together. Finally, we're at verses 24 and 25. And this is a great reminder that what happens to Jesus happens to us. Look what it says. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. So he's using this analogy. You know what it's like when you're in a class, a math class, an English class, a biology class. Presumably the teacher knows a whole lot more about the subject matter than you do. And in that sense, they are over you and you're learning from them. That's the way life works. So he uses this to illustrate a link between the Christian and our Christ. It is enough, verse 25, is it enough for the, for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house, who's the master of the house? Christ. Beelzebul, in other words, Jesus is the devil. That's what the world thought. Jesus is the devil. He's disturbing cultural order. He's got bad religion going on. We got to put him to death. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Why should we expect to be loved by the world? If they malign Christ and they called him the devil, and I think he lived out Christianity a little bit better than we ever would, he's the heart and soul of our faith. Of course they're going to come after us. Of course they are. So he saved us through suffering. We know that about Christ. It's like, I want to follow Jesus. Do you understand what his life was like? He saved us through suffering. Our salvation is realized through suffering. They called him the devil. They call us the devil. And... Think about the language that's being used even in relationship to the church today. I've heard, I've peop- and you've, you've heard it too, so don't feel sorry for me. I really couldn't care less. But I've had people say, I'm the leader of a cult. Oh, because I'm opening my church? Do you know what a cult is? A cult is someone who denies the Trinity, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, the veracity of Scripture. That's a cult. I'm none of those. But in the, in the world's view... Oh, you must be a cult leader if you don't follow all the secular godless ideologies, if you don't bow down to the experts. 
Oh, you're a cult leader. They like to throw that, those kind of accusations out. That's what we're going to be called. We're going to be called devils, disruptors of the social order, cult members. Who cares? Sticks and stones. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ went to, went through in order that he might sacrifice himself and save us from our sins. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged. We're in the middle of a storm. The black clouds aren't necessarily going to go away anytime soon. Don't be anxious. Do the right thing. That's what following Jesus is like. And then ask yourself this simple question as you leave. Are you prepared to sacrifice it all for the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember three years ago, we'd ask that kind of a question in a sermon. Everyone would be like, yeah, yeah. And now they're like, maybe? Are you prepared to sacrifice it all for Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to sacrifice your business, your job, your reputation, even your own life for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign kingship over all things. I trust that the Lord would strengthen you so that you might be able to answer with a resounding yes.